what is the Nietzsche in humanism and what does Nietzsche have to contribute about the question of, of post-humanism ultimately. We need to develop a much, much richer and much more open-minded historical awareness of, of all those kind of knowledges that have been produced and have been repressed as well. So Nietzsche is, is a good uh, case study. Nietzsche was not necessarily pro-democracy, which is not surprising at the end of the 19th century, but his philosophy can actually help us reinvigorate democracy. Hello, everyone. My name is Edgar Landgraf. I'm a professor of German at Bowling Green State University in Ohio. And today I have the honor and I'm grateful to talk to Christian Emden and Stefan Herbrechter, two leading scholars in Nietzsche and posthumanism, to discuss my work on Nietzsche's posthumanism. I say my personal interests in Nietzsche go all the way back to high school in Switzerland, wrote a few articles in between, uh, but never booked till now. And my interest in posthumanism, predate posthumanism a little bit as a term, go back to graduate, my graduate studies in the 1990s in Baltimore, where we did all kinds of different theories that today would be considered at least precursors to um, posthumanist theories. So maybe I let Christian and Stefan introduce themselves too uh, briefly so you can associate their voices too with their names and then we'll take it from there again. I'm Christian Emden. I'm the uh, Francis Moody Newman Professor at Rice University where I mainly teach um, intellectual history, German intellectual history and uh, with an emphasis also on political thought. And of course I have an interest in Nietzsche. I've written several books on Nietzsche including uh, one on Nietzsche's naturalism, and some of the themes of that particular book overlap, of course, with uh, Edgar's brilliant book on Nietzsche's posthumanism. Hi, I'm, I'm Stefan Herbrechter. I used to be reader in cultural theory at Coventry University and professor of English and cultural studies at Heidelberg University in Germany. I, I guess I'm included in this because I wrote a positive report on, uh, on Edgar's book, of course, and my investment is mainly in uh, the term critical posthumanism. I think I wrote the first, first book about it you know, using that label in 2009. The German edition then came out as a translation in 2013. I'm the, uh, the director of the uh, Critical Posthumanism Network, which has just published the uh, Paul Grave Handbook of Critical Posthumanism, to which uh, Edgar also contributed. And uh, we have a, an online project called The Gene Genealogy of the Posthuman, and uh, I also direct a, a book series on critical posthumanism. So that's going to be my, my focus on this discussion. Great. Uh, thank you. Uh, yes. And, and as I said, I'm very grateful for you spending your time here to discuss my book uh, with me. Again, Stefan Herbrechter's book, uh, when I read this a few years back now, really sparked the idea for my book, uh, as you put Nietzsche at the beginning of a genealogy of posthumanism. And I thought at the time, absolutely, and there's more to it. And then a few years later, found the time to really engage that more critically and more systematically, really. I also wanted to mention briefly, if, before we maybe talk or profile a little bit more what we mean by posthumanism, which is this very diverse field with often contradictory strands of thought and arguments. I also wanted to address, which I do in my introduction, of the apparent contradiction to write a book on posthumanism on a single author, no less on an author who is known to, or at least in the popular understanding, to promote exceptionality and, and sovereignty and the very things that posthumanists or critical posthumanists like to challenge. But the, the impetus here is, of course, not so much to, to write a book on Nietzsche, but really to understand Nietzsche 
himself in a context, not just the philosophy of his time, but also the scientific findings of his time that he studied quite intensely. And, and Christian Emden really contributed heavily to our better understanding what kind of sciences that uh, Nietzsche engaged and to which he responds philosophically. And that already foreshadows kind of contemporary posthumanism, which breaches the difference between the humanities and the natural sciences and tries to, to mediate between these two areas. You know, within that frame, too, in posthumanism and with Nietzsche, it's, it's not so much the idea to run away from humanism, but to redefine a little bit how the human in the singular, which is problematic already, is understood, how concepts of life, of self, of self-interest, of will, of agency are understood. And um, there, too, even a superficial understanding of Nietzsche shows that he is contesting these kind of concepts of our thinking. And so contributes to a larger episteme that once believes as Kerry Wolf, you know, puts it that thinking itself has to change to become really posthumanist. And so it's, it's that kind of approach to Nietzsche that I'm pursuing in my book. Stefan, maybe you want to say a few more words about posthumanism, critical posthumanism, different kinds of posthumanism. Yeah, thanks. I can try. As you rightly said, Edgar, I, I use Nietzsche as a sort of entrance into the whole topic of post-humanism, but I'm, of course, as you know, not a Nietzsche scholar as such. But Nietzsche, of course, played a very important part in um, post-structuralism and, uh, and, and deconstruction um, and the, the anti-humanist stance that prevailed in those formations who used Nietzsche as an ally in, in their project to deconstruct the liberal humanist subject and so on. Post-humanism, um, if you want, my take on it has always been that it is a discourse because it is an ism. Any, dis any ism is a discourse. And in the case of post-humanism, it's sort of double discourse. On the one hand, it is the discourse on this figure you can call post-human, um, the idea that we are no longer or content with uh, being human in the traditional sense, in the humanist sense. It's also the discourse that critiques or tries to go beyond humanism, itself a discourse. So it's, quite, it's, it's complicated. So it's, there's, there's three elements, post, human, and ism in this word. And uh, it's not always made quite clear in the way in which people use the term. Um, there's a very popular notion of post-humanism that everybody will have come across, which sort of, I would say, is, is actually transhumanist because it's about overcoming the limits of the human through technology. The idea that we can soon be able to download our minds into, uh, into computers, or the idea that AI will soon take over and, uh, and help humans to overcome their natural biological limitations, all these kind of things, I would put in the, uh, in the bracket of transhumanism. Post-humanism, in my view, is a bit more, more complicated and also a bit more critical. Not all of it, but my take is that it's a critique, the ongoing critique or deconstruction, if you want, of what humanism is and was and wants and the idea of the human that underlies humanist discourse. There are a couple of questions that focus this discussion, this, this critique. One is the return of the question of technology. What role does technology play in hominization, in becoming human, and therefore also in becoming something other than human? Of course, that cannot just be an instrumentalist role. No, it's not just a tool. It goes a lot more, let's say, deeper than that, our implication with, with technology. On the other hand, of course, this, this is happening in a context where we are becoming increasingly aware that humans 
are maybe not such nice people <laughs> in terms of environmental deterioration that, that we are causing. The, the key word of the Anthropocene here, which has been exercising people's minds, you know, what the idea that, that humans have become the main geological force and are now sort of in a, in a responsibility situation towards, towards non-human others and, and, and the planet and so on. What, what do we do, do with this, this knowledge, right? What does the human do with this knowledge? And, and so there's this, this second aspect, if you want to put it, which is an attempt to, to think post-anthropocentrism seriously. Think it through. Right? What, is, what would a post-anthropocentric world look like? A world, not necessarily a world without humans, but a, a world where humans are no longer on a confrontational course with non-human others in, in the planet and the environment. I guess this is, this is what post-humanism, if it's taken seriously, is about. And the critical post-humanism that I've been working towards, and I think Edgar's book is, is very much going in the same direction, is the, the additional, if you want, dimension is it has a genealogical dimension. It's not something that is purely future-oriented. It is, hence the interest in Nietzsche, it has precursors. It has important thinkers and discussions that uh, have opened up avenues not taken necessarily but still there and to which we can return that's why it's not a purely future-oriented discourse in my in my sense i can jump in and complicate things a little bit of course and sort of like jump right into the sort of like the, the fray of the title of your book on Nietzsche's post-humanism because there could also be a question mark behind that particular title that reflects on some of the issues that uh, Stefan Herbert had just mentioned, namely the sort of like uneasy and strange presence and relationship that Nietzsche has in those debates just, you know, that we just discussed. On the one hand, Nietzsche is this uncanny presence in all of these debates. He pops up constantly like another prominent figure in the history of philosophy, namely Spinoza. But while the sort of like the image and discussion of Spinoza in post-humanism um, is often more focused. Nietzsche is sort of like often sort of like presented as something interesting, but it's not really you know clear what Nietzsche has to contribute to this to this particular debate, which is I guess always Nietzsche's fate to some extent. Um, but sort of like the, the the great achievement of the book, as I think I've mentioned before, is is to clarify this particular point, namely what is the Nietzsche in humanism, and what does Nietzsche have to contribute about the question of, of post-humanism ultimately. Is Nietzsche sort of like a post-humanist in the sense that we discuss this sort of discourse today? Of course he's not, because he's a child of the 19th century in many ways. But in many ways also what he has to say about the relationship between self and nature or between nature and culture to use sort of like an, an old-fashioned sort of like opposition tie in very nicely and very well and very fruitfully with current discussions about post-humanism that raise exactly this particular point. This kind of like brings us, to, so in that sense, sort of like on the one hand, Nietzsche is and is not a post-humanist at the very same time. It depends a little bit on how you read them um, ultimately. Within that context, of course, Nietzsche's reception of the life sciences in particular in the context of the 19th century play a crucial role. And that is also in many ways then philosophically a link to Spinoza, that second prominent philosophical figure of debates in, in post-humanism. This opens up, you know, as far as Nietzsche is concerned, this, this sort of like tableau of topics and links and problems that his philosophical project presents 
generally speaking, but also in particular to our discussion of post-humanism. And one aspect that I hope we can return to later on again is also the question of the political import of Nietzsche's um, attempt to rethink the self as constitutive of nature and not as separate from nature in any way. Yeah, yeah, thank you. If if I just can connect a little bit to these two complex and interesting comments here. In some sense, of course, my project tries to use Nietzsche a little bit in Nietzsche's philosophy, and it's, it's a close reading of his philosophy, including his epistemology, um, his kind of social theory, and his takes on technology to use it a little bit to sort out the different, often rather superficial takes of Nietzsche in the posthumanist literature. So so I, I know the great divide, for example, within critical within posthumanism generally. And so I think Nietzsche can give us some kind of direction here or, or orientation a little bit where the fault lines are, where the differences are and what's at stake in these various debates. And, and see in each chapter kind of there's some reflection uh, where I put Nietzsche in dialogue with particular theories, for example, with new materialism in the epistemology chapter kind of the vitalist Jane Bennett line with uh, Deleuze Guattari, etc. And on the other hand, I found it also very interesting to come back to Nietzsche with kind of the questions and concepts and ideas that contemporary posthumanism is engaged in. And it had opened new venues, new outlooks on Nietzsche's philosophy too. So I found this kind of dialogue really productive. For example, something that I don't think anyone had really written about on Nietzsche before, the idea that there's actually some kind of anticipation of what becomes in a 20, later 20th century known as swarm theory, as my two chapters on insects in Nietzsche expand or find actually that Nietzsche was familiar with the entomological research of his time and that he had read, for example, very carefully this book by Alfred Espina, French writer on on animal societies, it's called, where he extensively discusses the research on insects, on insect hives, on beehives, on anthills, etc., in the 19th century. And, and Switzerland at the time, Nietzsche was a resident of Switzerland, was the hotbed of entomological studies. And so there is evidence that he was familiar with what was going on in this regard. So that, that really, I think, opened up a new venue to also think about Nietzsche's philosophy and, and focus on things that had been a bit neglected before. Uh, similarly, in technology, I, th I think there have been a few things written about technology, but in my book, I try to take a wider angle on technology and how was technology actually understood in the 19th century, which is quite different from the kind of gadget orientation that we have today when we talk about technology, and, and which brings us then to a concept, Stefan, I have, uh, had mentioned already, of harmonization, right? We cannot separate the evolution of humans from the evolution of technology. The two go hand in hand, and that it's really only established fully in the 20th century. Bernard Stiegler comes to mind here as, as really spelling this out with the paleontological research too that has been done and has you know has continued to be done and, and finds these interesting developments in how simple tools have allowed the human body even physically to evolve. At the very same time that, that Nietzsche writes, the first philosophy of technology by name by Ernst Kapp is published in, in 1872, if I remember correctly, which makes already these kind of arguments. Kapp is kind of a dialectical thinker, a Hegelian thinker in essence, um, that uh, tools, basic simple tools have allowed humans to evolve the way they did. And this process continues, of course, today, and we're maybe a little bit more aware today. But it's interesting to find this theme also in the theme of harmonization the harmonization effects of technology to find this already in Nietzsche. 
Maybe to go back to the social theory on insects, which challenges kind of the popular understanding of Nietzsche as, as a promoter of individualism, of, you know, the strong survive and the weak will die, etc. These kind of simplistic readings. Um, but close readings of his work show and another of his notes is that he was trying to understand how social aggregates form. And if you think of insects that they provide this uh, wonderful example how social aggregates can accomplish amazing things. And the 19th century knew already that insects would not just build elaborate architectures, hives and, and anthills, etc., but that they would actually do something akin to farming. Uh, they can domesticate other species. They map the environment. All these things were being recognized already. And they do these things, obviously, without the individual members of the hive or of this, you know, the individual ant doesn't know what the whole hive is doing. And they do it without having kind of an authority dictating or plan what needs to happen. So it also challenges this kind of social hierarchy idea that is often associated still with Nietzsche. Instead, it shows what today we show, you know, we call emergent properties, how through interactive processes, structures emerge over time and in time, where the individual contribution is not one of dictating things, but very much needs to be understood in reference or in relation to what's going on in the surroundings and through the interactions between the members of a group. If we then look, for example, at, and we can kind of pinpoint when Nietzsche was most engaged with this kind of research because we have this personal copy of him of reading Alfred Espinas' book and we have the markings that I looked at, which you can look at these things online now, which is really, really interesting how he really puts three lines and exclamation marks next to what he thinks are interesting or important arguments, which doesn't always mean means he agrees, but it means that he noticed them and, and saw them as significant. And then articulations of, of the will that we find, for example, in Beyond Good and Evil, which he deconstructs, as we say today, and develops very much in analog to kind of the interactive processes from which, again, insects or other species gain kind of agencies and directionalities. I can um, elaborate a little bit more on this particular aspect because also it raises many sort of like philosophical questions that are really that go to the core of Nietzsche's project as a whole. The question of the will, the question of teleology, and also the question of sort of like how to look at the human social world from this particular perspective, with this particular perspective in the background of insects and a whole range of other animals and species that he considers, and insects are particularly prominent and interesting. Nietzsche often speaks about sort of almost as though he wants to deliver a kind of like a zoology of the human instead of really a social theory of the human. Because he does consider this particular background or this particular perspective as, as crucial for understanding what human societies do, and especially what individuals within that society do, and how they, how they conceive of themselves, both morally, politically, but also socially, and what they do in terms of what does human agency actually mean, seen from this perspective. And one of the issues that comes up when you look at sort of like insects, broadly speaking, is the question of teleology. So, I mean, Darwin uses this wonderful example of like, you know, the bees building the beehive. And that led to a debate among commentators of Darwin. Is Darwin a teleologist or isn't he a teleologist? Does he believe that there's an overarching goal of the bees or not? And Nietzsche just like picks up on this. He's very sort of like attuned to those, to those debates and often reads sort of like between the lines of the many texts that he reads. 
he links this to broader philosophical issues about how evolution works also with regard to humans. Sort of like what's, what's important in that context is that Nietzsche, on the one hand, certainly does deny the existence of teleology, for instance. The idea that nature as a whole or human agency is in some way goal-directed. He would fundamentally deny this, but he does not give up in light of sort of evolutionary debates on the question of the directedness of societies, how societies developed. It's just that he understands sort of like this directedness as something that is built into the path-dependent development of societies rather than looking at it from the perspective of some goal. And the same can be said with regard to, of course, like how insects respond to their environment. There is not a, like a goal-directed teleology that is, a, that is really at stake here, but it's something that is emergent, as in a sense, while something is happening on the ground. And that, that I think, is a very important you know, aspect of Nietzsche's thinking about nature, for want of a better term. I just wanted to say a couple of things also about Nietzsche's reading habits, because they're actually quite wonderful. There are few philosophers where we have such detailed knowledge about his reading habits because we have access to all, all but most of the material that he actually read. And he was a prolific underliner and constantly writing comments in the margins. And sometimes they're very cryptic. And sometimes you can see of like the imprint of the pencil when he disagrees or agrees with something very fervently. And it's there's this materiality of this engagement with scientific texts that is really crucial and fascinating. Now, now, of course, it's like more easily accessible because most of this is on line and you can look at it. I remember that when I wrote my PhD way back when in the 90s, you still had to go to the archive and you had this example, these books in your hand with like Nietzsche's underlinings. That's because it's sort of like a tangible aspect of this deep involvement with the natural sciences of his time. Sometimes commentators of Nietzsche from analytic philosophy sort of like push this a little bit to the side and argue that, well, Nietzsche just always read the foreword or the introduction and then the conclusion and didn't really read anything in between. Um, so he really doesn't have any clue about what's going on in the natural sciences in the 19th century. But then you look at this material and yeah, sure, sometimes he misunderstands things. Sometimes you just wonder why could he possibly have underlined a particular sentence, which makes no sense anymore, but made perfect sense to Nietzsche clearly. But he was an avid reader of all this material. So when you actually look at the entire list of his personal library, and also, as far as we know, what he borrowed as a professor from the university library in Basel in Switzerland, there are two kinds of books that really dominate. Early on, it's philology, of course, because that's his profession. Later on, a bit more philosophy. But books on the natural sciences are really dominant throughout his entire career. Sometimes he consulted them in more detail, sometimes in, in less detail. But he was completely aware of both the overall trends of the natural sciences in the 19th century, as well as the disunity and debates among the sciences in the 19th century. And that, in many ways, also informs his sort of philosophical take on some of those particular kind of issues. Thank you. Yes, I think I read somebody that ten percent of his library was was really books from the natural sciences, which which is amazing considering he's a philologist by profession. In my insect chapter, the the most interesting part from the Espinar book is is a lengthy footnote, which is in the middle of the book. So he did read this book in much detail, including the footnotes, etc. 
Stefan, maybe if I can pitch that back to you, but the swarm theory also raises uh, a term I think you mentioned earlier of embeddedness, which is in post-humanist theory today um, quite important. Um, social embeddedness, environmental embeddedness, and we, we see kind of a recognition of that thinking in Nietzsche already based on these kind of studies from the life sciences. Maybe if you want to take it back a little bit to the post-humanist angle there. Yeah, as I said before, I'm not here as a, as a Nietzsche scholar. Um, what, what I like about your book, of course, Edgar, is that you provide these detailed and historically founded connections between Nietzsche and, and the natural sciences of this time. And as you say, this is a good, well, nurturing ground for the kind of ideas that are that have been coming back in uh, in a post-humanist context to be the idea that the humanities and the sciences are again interested in each other right? at least from from a humanities point of view that's that's the case i'm not so sure how many scientists actually read post-humanist theory but the idea that solutions to problems that that we face can only be approached or be gleaned from a new you know, willingness to cooperate between in all sorts of humanistic backgrounds and natural science and life science backgrounds in new contexts, which Gary Wolf has, has called the post-humanities, if you want. The fact that your book is, is appearing in this series is, of course, no coincidence, because the meeting ground is mired with misunderstanding. It is also very rich right, in terms of information that is there and which needs to be excavated and, and returned to. If we want to uh, address problems like climate change and uh, the future of hominization or post-humanization, then of course we need to develop a much, much richer and much more open-minded historical awareness of, of all those kind of knowledges that have been produced and have been repressed as well. So Nietzsche is, is a good uh, case study here, I'd, I'd say, for this sort of, as you call it, embeddedness. This is not just a success story of individuals that have acquired rational knowledge uh, in order to produce fantastic scientific and technological ex exploits and have gone to, you know, are about to go and explore, uh, explore space or whatever and find exoplanets where we're going to start this whole success story all over again. No, I think, I think embeddedness goes back to what I, I said about post-anthropocentrism, actually, you know, the idea that that our self-identity as exceptional outcomes of biological and technological evolution um, needs to be complicated. Uh, we need to re-anchor ourselves in, uh, in all sorts of biopolitical, biotechnological ways to address um, the current crisis. If we don't do that, there, there, will no, there will not be a continuation of the success story. So the embeddedness is, is actually ontologically vital if we want to continue our story, if you, if you want to survive, but also if you want the planet to survive. So I think your book in this series, Post-Humanity series, which is exceptional, as far as I can tell, in, in bringing together studies and, and authors that look at this current problem from a highly political, but also from a genealogical point of view. So going back to previous um, maybe avenues not taken, and it's, it's, I think this, this is what constitutes the fascinating thing that this is serious. And um, hearing you talk about Nietzsche, of course, I, I think we need to address, and Christian also already pointed towards this topic, right? We need, we need to talk about Nietzsche as a highly ambiguous and, and also highly dangerous figure, right? Let's, let's face it, you know, we, we need to talk about the bugbear and the Nietzsche's overman, 
because of the two ways in which Nietzsche is being read again today, right, as on the one hand, as a precursor of all sorts of critical questions that, that continue to haunt us, and on the other hand, as, as the guy who showed us the way how to overcome ourselves in, in a transhumanist fashion. In terms of political explosiveness of Nietzsche, we need, I think we need to address this. Oh yeah, absolutely. And and I do address it. I think that's kind of the central topic of, of my last chapter, but it comes up earlier already. And I'm going to detour just a little bit, not avoiding the question, but leading to it through the two technology chapters, which I think reveal as a, a larger theme. I think Nietzsche's philosophy can be really helpful in understanding better how the humanist tradition fails to live up to its own ideals. And these ideals include creating a more humane, sustainable, civil society, right? In my technology chapters, I focus first on uh, advantages and disadvantages of history for life, where, where Nietzsche embeds a really visionary critique of the mass media of his time, the printing press, and of the modern educational system, which he argues, rather than through knowledge that we become more civil, has actually produced, these technologies have produced a way of processing information that makes us more barbaric desensitizes us actually towards he mentions the, the a war and that is you know put into a newspaper a thousand times before it's even over that has no real effect anymore we're not taking it seriously anymore so it's this kind of really interesting um, communication media technology critique and cultural critique embedded here that is targeting this kind of enlightenment belief in education equals less violence equals more civility etc Nietzsche turns this on its head Another area, this is in the second chapter on, on technology in my book, a return to the genealogy of morals, which I think can also be read as Nietzsche trying to understand better how Western society has cultivated or how we've been harmonized through certain interpretive and even economic strategies that have produced a consolidation of power, but not really a reduction of violence, just a consolidation and institutionalization of violence. Nietzsche, interestingly, has some really, I mean, today we'd say progressive views on, on punishment, for example, which just reveals or hides the underlying uh, violence that is still part of society in the late 19th century that prides itself in its enlightenment and civilized status and advanced status. And you know, there's no excuse, Nietzsche argues, for punishing people anymore. It's, it's, it's like they used to punish sick people. Why do we continue to do this? And, and I know Christian has written about this, this too, and maybe um, I mean, we're moving towards the political here already. This is where Nietzsche, I think, yes, is dangerous, but also really helpful in understanding the contradictions and problems within the larger humanist discourse in, in facing up to its own let's say, power assertions to its uh, and failing to address really systemic problems by focusing much too much on moral compass of, of individuals, etc. I can jump right in there, of course, um, not only because it's a bit of an intellectual hobby horse, of course, but, you know, it, it goes to the core of some of my own work on Nietzsche. I think we need to make a number of distinctions here. Nietzsche is dangerous only to those who want to avoid uncomfortable questions. Um, and Nietzsche poses plenty of uncomfortable questions about the reality of what it means to be human, of what it means to live in a society, and what society really looks like. And one of those uncomfortable questions is concerned with violence, the presence of violence, and whether humans have been able and will ever be able to avoid violence. Nietzsche is very skeptical about that. 
also in the sense in which he sees the overall evolution and development of any morality, of any ethical claims as intimately connected to forms of violence. That's a very crucial understanding in our societies and relatively affluent liberal democracies where violence is seen as sort of like a deviation from the norm. Nietzsche reminds us that as far as the human species is concerned, violence has been part of our history, will be part of our history, and that poses uncomfortable questions about what to do with this. So in a sense, you know, sort of like I'm already indicating that in the political realm, Nietzsche is far more of a realist in many ways than we often give him credit to. And the reason why sort of like he appears to be dangerous has, of course, a lot to do with his reception in, in the sense that, of course, you know, sort of like the Nietzsche image, especially the popular Nietzsche image, is in many ways shaped by the very different sort of like strange ways in which he has been read in the, already in the context of the First World War, where, you know, Nietzsche sort of like, especially the idea of the Übermensch, of the overhuman, became particularly popular. And in fact, the German military even doled out to its soldiers in the French trenches copies of Zarathustra, which I, I doubt anybody, any of them will have really read. They had other things to do. So there is a reception of Nietzsche on the far right, especially, that is very different from what Nietzsche says about many of these topics. Much of the misunderstanding of Nietzsche as a sort of like a particularly dangerous thinker in that respect has, of course, something to do with the metaphors and models that Nietzsche uses. Think about the will to power, the overman. These are sort of like intentionally polemical terms with which Nietzsche, of course, wants to have an effect. But he also wants to describe something really complicated. Another example is sort of like the way in which Nietzsche is, because of his reception during the Nazi regime, is often seen as sort of like, well, his biological philosophy, of course, entails a certain racism. And he uses the term race, of course, throughout his writings. But the way in which race as a concept is being used in some of those philosophical debates in the 19th century does not map at all and not easily on the way in which race as something exclusionary is being used today in the contemporary debate. So we need to sort of like, you know, make all kinds of distinctions here between original context and what we can learn from the original context on the one hand, and the sort of like broad popular reception of Nietzsche and reading that is also often highly problematic, both on the left as well as on the right. This is sort of like a, something that sort of like happens on, on both sides of the political divide in many ways. There is one particular area in which I think Nietzsche is particularly helpful with regard to the political dimension of the debate about posthumanism, but also new materialism. And that is the question of normativity. How do norms, the norms that guide us and the norms that sometimes we disagree with and sometimes we embrace, how do they actually come about if we think about this in natural terms and in terms of emergent properties and so on? One of the problems of uh, new materialism in particular is a relatively flat ontology that does not allow, ultimately, for making normative distinctions between certain things. So on the one hand, you have a, a broader intellectual trend in new materialism that wants to say something distinctly political to, that speaks to our current situation, but at the same time, it has great difficulties in making normative distinctions because its own ontology does not allow for you know, a valid concept of normativity. And on the other side, you have critical theory and political liberalism and political theory, something about Rawls and Habermas, of course, and, and others, who have a strong sense of normativity and how norms come about, but they connect them to reasons, right, to forms of justification. 
and they completely ignore the natural context within which these justifications actually occur and what makes these justifications possible. What Nietzsche here brings to the table is ultimately a way to think about this particular relationship between, on the one hand, an ontology that is deeply rooted in the idea that there is nothing special about humans and that we are part of whatever else we call nature. But on the other hand, also that there is something about humans as a particular kind of species that allows us to make normative distinctions. Think about the sort of like the figure of the sovereign individual um, in the context of the genealogy of morality. Nietzsche uses this interesting metaphor of that sovereign individual is the, sort of like the, the ripest fruit on the tree of human evolution. I don't know whether I really want to be a ripe fruit, but there we go. But it's the ripest fruit on the tree of human evolution. And then he explains, well, what really distinguishes the sovereign individual from their precursors is that he doesn't have to make any promises. The sovereign individual has a right to make promises. But a right to make promises doesn't mean that you have to make a promise. That it means you don't have to engage within a particular, say, moral or ethical setting or even a particular political context. What Nietzsche is sort of like going on about here is, in a sense, can also be understood sort of like in a different way. Ultimately, he accepts the way in which natural, or what we call nature for want of a better term, serves as sort of like the condition for the possibility of having norms. But what we ultimately do with that possibility is something entirely different. We have as humans, as it were, a sort of like a framework, a sort of like a context of possibilities within which we can operate and within which we have a certain kind of freedom that is actually provided by something that does not allow for freedom. This is kind of the paradox, which is nature, of course. And I think Nietzsche makes a really valuable contribution about how to think about the fundamental conditions of political norms, which is something that I think post-humanism has great difficulties with, but equally critical theory and political liberalism have great difficulties with because they ignore the side of nature ultimately. Thank you. Yes, very interesting. I, I do think the ripest fruit is actually a negative metaphor, even so it seems like a great accomplishment here. He uses the same metaphor in the second untimely meditation already, and that's clearly used in a, in a critical sense. But it maybe also carries this idea of a new morality that needs to grow that does not repeat the pitfalls. And I try to pin this down in how he explains how we were harmonized, what interpretive strategies has created this modern human, ultimately the sovereign individual, that harks a lot back on this kind of, I call it a, a psychoeconomic calculus, that somehow there is equivalency in somebody doing something that needs to, we say today, you know, that ask for payback. But what, what is being paid back if you punish somebody? Right? This is really interesting analysis. In some sense, what Nietzsche challenges us to understand better is, is how much our modern institutions, even when we show mercy, is still built on this kind of tradition of seeking equivalency through a, a reward and punishment regiment, institutionally, politically, you know, in education even, that is, at least from today's perspective, not very helpful in addressing the kind of challenges, environmental challenges we talked about, migration challenges, etc., that we face today. So in many ways, I think Nietzsche can help us understand a little how humanist modes of thinking persist that are, let's say, too simple to actually address the main challenges humanity faces today, which in part are brought in you know, through technologies, obviously, the Anthropocene we've mentioned. So my reading there is a little bit, I, I fully agree, of course, both the far-right appropriation of Nietzsche and the liberal critique of Nietzsche, 
they are very superficial readings of, of Nietzsche. Right? Beiner would say we have to take him by his word. Well, we're not taking him by his word when Nietzsche says he doesn't want to take, be taken by his word. Which caused, again, which I hope I do a little bit in my book for a closer analysis, actually, what the arguments are, rather than working with some of the legacy, I call it, of, of Nietzsche's philosophy that often does not really engage critically on Nietzsche's philosophy. And there it's interesting that in recent years, in recent 10 years, we've had a number of arguments, actually, in Nietzsche's scholarship that have pointed out how Nietzsche was not necessarily pro-democracy, which is not surprising at the end of the 19th century when he writes, but his philosophy can actually help us reinvigorate democracy. And this is an area where I, I try to engage a little bit also some of posthumanist ethics, in particular Rosie Braidotti, Francesca Ferrando, Patricia McCormack, who kind of emphasized this idea of community, of togetherness, of a new togetherness that needs to be defined or found to tackle the um, dangers and, and, and challenges we face today as a society. And that obviously doesn't mesh well with, with Nietzsche's philosophy. So <laughs> whatever I personally might think about this or not, these are great ideals, but Nietzsche's insistence that we cannot avoid competitiveness, competition, opposition, I think we need to take seriously as posthumanists too in articulating an ethics that doesn't fall back into some kind of idealist stance and the realization of community that ultimately will have to turn against community in the name of creating community that prolongs or extends this kind of humanist thought patterns that, again, I, I think ultimately the lesson here from Nietzsche is are not able to counter effectively the challenges that humanity faces today. And so I, I kind of end in this last chapter on, on promoting, this might be a little disappointing for some, a more pragmatist approach with Nietzsche. The idea that I think with Nietzsche, we, we should focus more on our embeddedness and what within the circumstances within individuals find themselves uh, can be done rather than maybe articulate moral ideals. I don't know if, Stefan, we kind of approached your dangerousness question appropriately here. Oh, I don't think there's, a, there's an appropriate way of, of, of doing this, but I, I mean, we, we cannot ignore the fact that um, Nietzsche is again being hijacked by uh, transhumanists like Steve Fuller. There is something in Nietzsche, undoubtedly, that uh, allows for that, and, and it's, it's no, there's no need to argue argue that away. Um, I mean, Nietzsche is a self-stylized uh, provocateur. He wants to smash uh, with his big hammer, and and of course uh, the pieces. Um, yes, there's a great deal of let's say nihilism that can be appropriated in all sorts of ways. And I think it's best to accept this, but this is the case with a number of, of important thinkers. I think it's ultimately a political question, right? And, and that's where the pragmatism comes in. I have a lot of time for a certain kind of pragmatism that in the end sort of says, oh, to hell with the idealist philosophical questions. What does that mean politically? What, what can we do? What is to be done? I mean, that, that's the, the way I think pragmatism in the end manages to, um, to bring people around. It's a move that isn't entirely problematic in itself, right? Pragmatism is not, it's not the solution necessarily, but it's, it is a point in an argument where you have, you have to sort of come to a critical distance where you say, but yes, but what does that mean? What, what do we do with this? What do we do with post-humanism? What do we do with Nietzsche and post-humanism? And, and, uh, and I agree with, with Edgar very much in his conclusion that, that yes, there is a need for all these philosophical arguments, these ethical questions uh, about violence and why, why humanism continues to, to disappoint us. 
where does the violence come from? Now, I said at the beginning, I'm not a Nietzsche, um, uh, and that's in, in the same way that you are engaging with, with Nietzsche. And I think I would want to poke a little bit further than, than Nietzsche's Darwinism here, maybe. The, the idea of violence is a very hot topic for, for all sorts of reasons, because we're, we seem to be returning to, to more violent patterns of behavior, which we thought we'd overcome, but no, they're still there. And why is that so? And I guess you could reproach humanism with this idea of perfectibility, right? Where, where you know the, the 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 maybe naive or idealist idea that you know through cultural refinement we we become less violent. This has been disproven for some time, but but I think it's still one of the pillars of uh, liberal humanism, right? But if you take that away, if you destroy that with your big Nietzschean hammer, what remains? What's the alternative? Pragmatically, you know, where does that leave you? And the question here, where I found uh, Edgar's book is really important, is, and I, I don't know exactly where you, where you say it, or whether you actually say it out loud, or whether I just heard it, is the question of address. Who is this addressed to? Who is this critique of violence actually addressed to? Who is the, this all wonderful embedded post-humanist politics actually addressed to, if not, in the end, a liberal humanist subject again? This is the most political question that you can probably ask right now. What kind of address would you have to configure that goes or falls outside these three main political discourses that you mentioned? You know, liberalism, fascism, communism, socialism, if you want. How do you get people, but not just people, everybody, right, into the political sphere, which you need to create in order to address problems that no longer just concern humans? And that's where I found your book really opens up that question. And, and, and I think in my report, I said, that's where I, you, you mentioned some people might disappoint, be disappointed. I, I was both disappointed, but also intrigued, because that's where the follow-up will have to be. There's a, an article in the works on addressing this more heads-on, I, I think. And I do come back to this at the very end of the book, right? And, and I do try to situate to my own book, who am I talking to, which is, you know, I'm not naive about. It is an academic book. I, I hope it's accessible. I try in my writing to make demanding arguments accessible to an interested readership. But just to bring it back to Nietzsche in a second, and at the end in the book, if you remember, I'd quote Tamar Sharon, who very concretely, pragmatically tries to analyze what do you do, for example, in a Google health system complexities where you have come together economic questions, questions of regulation, questions of medicine, of science, etc. And people that work in that environment have to make very complex decisions. There are no simple answers here, right? And she just in a parenthesis says, and, and kind of to moralize here is not helpful. It just doesn't take us anywhere. And I think that Nietzsche's posthumanism can, can open up a little bit to here. The perspective on a, a more pragmatic approach needs to be contextual and negotiate these complexities. And that would include, by the way, that once, once in a while it might be quite pragmatic to be idealist about things in certain settings. I don't want to deny that at all. I just thought that in the posthumanist discussions of ethics, a dose of Nietzsche can be really helpful and maybe um, challenging. I want to thank Christiane Emden again, Stefan Herbrechter, for volunteering your time. I really, really appreciate it and your expertise on the topic and your support. I also want to thank the University of Minnesota Press, who's been a great team, editorial team, uh, the feedback generally I got and copy editing and, and now even making this podcast 
possible, I think has been really wonderful and I'm, I'm really grateful. I'd like to thank everyone again um, for making this possible and again, Stefan and Christian for, for this, um, I think, very productive discussion. Thank you for writing this, this book in the first place. I think it will have a, a, a really lasting impact in two different fields. Thank you. Yeah, it was a, it was a pleasure, of course. I hope you'll sell loads of copies. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you, yes. <laughs> <laughs>